Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to be uh, here with these, these friends, fellow uh, believers, people who want to know you, who are thinking about you, who are seeking after you, at least willing to listen. And I thank you for the chance to be here with them, uh, to be gathered together in your name, uh, to worship you. Uh, to to listen uh, to what your word declares to us. And I pray that you would shape us with your word, that we, we would become a distinct people uh, because of your mark uh, placed upon us because of Christ, uh, because of the word that is hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against you, and because of your grace and mercy that empowers us to live a life despite our unworthiness of your favor. And so I pray that the words that I say and the, the hearts of each one of us who's listening would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know what you're all wondering. Why did I throw that paper on the ground? And uh, is Kanye West a Christian? That's, uh, that's what you're all wondering. And so we're just gonna we're just gonna figure that out tonight. That's the main purpose of our gathering. Uh, all other things can go to the side, and we'll we'll just sort that out for you right now. Um, no, I, I got I got wrapped up uh, as millions of others did uh, in the past last couple weeks in uh, Kanye fever, uh, if you will, and 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 you know what I saw in that, and and I would have gotten caught up in it for sure because I'm a hip hop fan, and that's and I'm a Christian, and so when your two favorite things kind of intersect and get big in the news, you're going you're gonna to follow along with that. But what I saw as I was watching people writing about this and responding to this and, and all that is that they're trying to discern whether this, um, this new faith of Kanye's is the faith, if it's, if it's real, genuine Christianity, or if this has some other motivation, if this is of the world, if this is a, some kind of a career move or something like that. And there's a reason that we care about that. Um, a, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how we, we should care about what believers say in public spaces, and we should care about whether or not we are aligned with somebody who says this is Christianity. Uh, we, should, we should care, because when we attach ourselves to something like that, we're saying, look, this is the faith. This is my faith. Uh, this is an extension of the church. This is who I am. This is who we are. So, so we should care. And the questions that come to mind are, you know, can somebody say Jesus is king and worship Jesus outside of a true 
conversion? Is that possible or not? Uh, how do you judge somebody's sincerity? You know, how much change do you need to see in what amount of time to believe that somebody is, is honest and sincere in their faith? Um, you wonder, how is this going to change like Kanye West's relationship to the culture? What's that, what's that going to be like? Um, what's it going to look like for our culture to be engaging with a, a pop star, a rap star, who, uh, if, if he continues in this, is overtly Christian? And what will the culture and what will the church do with somebody who's being overtly Christian? Will they accept that or not? And these kind of questions aren't new. Um, Even today, I stumbled upon the fact that, you know, Montel Jordan, who wrote the song, if you were in my generation, this is how we do it. Come on. He put out a gospel album years ago. It wasn't nearly as big of a thing as this. But um, this isn't new in, in our day right now. There are a lot of conversions happening. Some of them are a little less big news than others. Um, but also it's not new in history. In fact, John was engaging with something like that right here in 1 John back in the, the early church. So this evening we're concluding this mini-series on spirits, as we're calling it. Um, and here John, the apostle, clearly states that there needs to be a distinction between what he calls the world and Christians. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. We've, we've talked a lot about this section. We've talked about what, you know, what the, the gospel truth would look like, what we should accept, and, uh, and what we should reject in the last couple weeks. And today, tonight, I want to talk about what our relationship as Christians is supposed to be to the world. And, um, and I hope that helps um, you walk away knowing exactly whether or not Kanye West is a Christian or not. Um, I, you won't. I'm not going to clear that up for you. Sorry. Uh, but I want to talk tonight about the Christian's relationship to the world and then how to cultivate the right relationship to the world according to uh, the Apostle of John or the Apostle John. So let's, let's jump into this. I'm going to reread verses 4 through 6. And, and as I do that, I want to explain something. Is there's, a, there's an extra emphasis on some of the words in this passage, and I, I want to read them as such. Um, and there. And they, this emphasis draws out how stark a contrast the Apostle John is suggesting there is between the Christian and the world. And so just to stay on the Kanye track for just one little bit, one more minute, just one more minute. Give me one more minute. Um, imagine when I'm reading this, like you've heard, maybe you've heard the song Closed on Sundays, where in the middle of the song, after all the Chick-fil-A stuff that throws us all off, um, <laughs> He goes into this kind of rhythmic section where he says, I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his. I am no longer my own. Imagine it being read like that. And and I'm going to try to read it like that because that's sort of how the apostle Paul was speaking. So he said, said it this way, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the the world listens to them. We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm going to do a little quick um, explanation of some of that by reading it one more time. Little children, you, and by that he means these are the faithful believers who have not been drawn astray by the false teaching he's talked about elsewhere in the book. You are from God and have overcome them. Them refers to the false teachers that came into the church and brought in a new gospel. And in John's case, the gospel that they brought in wasn't too crazy. They just said Jesus was mystical as opposed to being an actual person. So he says, you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, those false teachers and their followers now, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We, now speaking very broadly about John the Apostle, all of Jesus' apostles, and all true members of the church, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John draws this stark contrast, which requires that we clarify what the world is. What's he talking about when he draws this contrast between us and the world? And there's, there's a lot here. I got to spend a little time here because the world is the sphere ruled not by the kingdom of God. So the Bible tends to talk about two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and then the kingdom of the world. And so by being not under the kingdom of God, the world is under the authority of Satan, of the tempter in the scriptures. And the ruling principles are the self and the quest for autonomy and the quest for power outside of the creator and this is where people naturally fall. And I, I use that word fall on purpose because if you go back into the book of Genesis, you see the first temptation, it's all about this very idea. This, it's this distinction being worked out. Am I going to trust God who is going to withhold information from me and he's going to withhold autonomy from me and he's going to withhold power from me, but he's going to promise me that this is good and that I can trust him? Or am I going to listen to the tempter and the tempter is going to tell me that I have what it takes to discern good and evil myself. And I don't need to be ruled by a God who I'm not sure I can trust. And the same issue works works itself out all throughout the scriptures. Now the kingdom of God, on the other hand, is the way it ought to be, is a way of saying it. It's under the authority of the creator. It's reinstated by his appointed savior, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, the one who became like sinful humanity to live as they should have lived and to bear their guilt. And this is where people, the kingdom of God is where people worship God alone. He is the one worthy of all praise and honor and their lives. And they serve one another with the aim of the other people worshiping God as well. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's the way it ought to be. Because, and we know this because Jesus came and said, when he came to earth, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And he taught us, he reinstated the old laws of the Old Testament. He said, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then he died a death he didn't deserve in our place to make it possible for us to enter in and be a part of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom, the we of this passage, is what some would call the rule, reign, and authority of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it includes all those who acknowledge it. It's present in all places, in all homes, in all businesses, in all gatherings, where there's just two or more people who gather in his name. The kingdom is there. And the kingdom is within the world. John says that in his quoting of Jesus' prayer in John 17 that I read at the beginning, that they're in the world. He's not taking them out of the world. They're in the world. And elsewhere in Matthew 5, where Jesus is teaching his first like, major sermon, he says, here's what you're supposed to be. Here's what my kingdom is. It's like a city set up on a hill, which many believe means like a city in a city, like one of the hills of Jerusalem, like all the rest of the city could look to this portion of the city from where the light is coming. And then he says, you're like a lamp inside of a house and you're giving light to all the other rooms. And so you have to be in the house. You have to be present. You have to be available. They, in the scriptures, are their false teachers. In this case, as we've discussed several times, they were within the church. So they were, they were you know, here. They were your friends. You like them. They believe a lot of the same things as you do, and they're influenced by other ideologies, and they're going different directions. But these aren't, these aren't crazy people with bulldozers. These are like people you, you look at and you go, oh, we're so close. And I like them. And they teach any other basis or kingdom or hope or purpose other than what the kingdom of God is founded on. And this they includes all those to whom it rings true and to whom the gospel lands flat. Meaning that when somebody comes and and says to them, no, 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 like we must believe in the grace of God and Jesus, and that's how we move forward, and that's how we offer anything to the world. It's all patterned after Jesus and his grace, and we need his grace because we're, we're sinful and we're hopeless without it. And those people go, what are you, I don't, I don't see it. I, I, I see a lot of other, I want to be a good person. I want to have a religious experience. I want to, I want to stay in the lane my parents put me in. I, I, want to, I want to be a part of this community, but I'm not really sure about everything you're saying about how core Jesus is to all of this. That's who John is calling the world. Okay. Do you see the distinction in the Apostle John's mind? There's two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom ruled by Christ, clarified by his word, enabled by his grace. And then there's the world ruled by a tempter in which life is about autonomy, where the self is at the center, where I pave my own way, I am my own righteousness. 
I am enough. So now, how does that kingdom of God, the Christian community, relate to the world? How do they exist? What do we learn? First of all, John's assumption here is that in a way, in many ways, they're completely integrated. There's a common phrase that comes from Jesus in John 17, and it's in the world but not of the world, or if you grew up in the early 2000s, N-O-T-W, and you put that sticker on your car and you had no idea what it meant. But this phrase, in the world but not of the world, comes from, from Jesus, from John quoting Jesus in that prayer I read at the beginning. I'll read, it, I'll read a portion of it one more time. I've given them your word. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now here, Jesus clearly assumes believers should and will be integrated into the surrounding culture. That's what he's saying. They're going to be in the world. They're sent into the world. And his prayer to God is that they will be kept from the evil one and that their hearts, that they as a, as a people will be set apart or sanctified. That's, that word means to be made holy or, or to stand apart, to be, to be unique in the midst of the world. Another key scripture that works this out is, uh, comes from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. And he's saying essentially what John is saying. He's in a similar situation where there's teachers who have come in and there have been false teachings that sound really interesting and, and really, really good. And, and Paul writes this, and I, I listen close, I, I really find this interesting. He clarifies a previous letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he pauses for a second. He goes, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would have to go out of the world. And I love that line. I've brought that line up here before because it's at least ironic and at most a little sarcastic where he's going, you know, the only way you get away from them is to, like, get in a spaceship alone. That's the only way. He says, no, but, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or a sister if they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So here's what he's saying, and this is the opposite of what we often want to do. He's saying, do associate with unbelievers, immoral ones, the sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. He's saying, do associate with them, but do not associate with people who pretend to follow Jesus and then do those things. So from these texts, and I would say the plain, the plain sense of the rest of Scripture, 
the call for God's people is to live among people of the world who do not see God for who he is, do not see his word for what it is, do not follow God at all, but to live in their midst, okay? The teaching, I would say, is that the kingdom, God's people, Christians, who accept the grace of God in Jesus Christ should be ideally integrated, and I would even go as far as to say at peace among people who don't see any of what they see. And this gets worked out, um, a famous place where this gets worked out is in uh, Augustine's City of God, where he talks about these two cities that, that exist together on earth. And the one is the kingdom or the city of God, and the other is, is the, what we're saying here. It's the world, the city of man. And he says we have to live together in this world until the day that Christ returns and makes everything whole. And he coined a little phrase um, that has become a word in our day, the word secularism. And his suggestion was that we live together in this shared space, the seculum, where, where we have to live together, the two kingdoms. We have to do it. Now, you might say, um, if, you've, if you've read the Bible, and I, I'm hoping you are saying right now in your head, wait, Andy, that's not so plain. You just said plain teaching in the Bible. I'm not sure about that. Because, wait, didn't God once, you know, make his people displace their enemies? And didn't they once live in this very dominant kingdom in which it was a theocracy where God ruled over everything? Wasn't, didn't that happen? What about that? And you're right, that did happen. And there's, there's two motifs, there's two kind of ways that people live that we see in the Bible, and both are important. The first is the state of being exalted and restored. And the second is the state of being an exile in a foreign land. And God's people in the scriptures, you, you can find periods where both of those are happening. And the question is, which one are we in now? Is this a time where God's people have been restored and utterly exalted? That did happen in the Old Testament. There was a kingdom of Israel that was, it was delivered out of Egypt. It was restored. It was exalted. And it couldn't have been ultimate because it unraveled completely and very quickly. But we did see that motif. When we saw that that is something that God would do. But then you also see his people go into exile and have to live in other cultures like Babylon, where they're called to live for the good of this pagan culture that they're in the middle of, that they're supposed to seek the peace of the city. So which one are we in now? Key scripture here to understand what the New Testament says about this is 1 Peter 2, 9-17. Peter says this, it's around the same period of time that John wrote his letter. He said, you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is sounding like kingdom, like restored, 
right? It's sounding really good. But then he says, beloved, and the theologians call this the already but the not yet. You've been made a promise. You're already this, this identity is yours, but are you living out of it yet? That's the question. And he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And this is among people who don't believe. You're among them. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which he's assuming they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, he's, he's talking a little bit like Jesus. You're a city amidst a city. You're a light in the middle of a house. You're waiting for something. And right now you're in the middle of people who don't believe. Now look at one of the conclusions Peter makes based on the fact that we're part of an ultimate spiritual kingdom, but, but right now living as a group of exiles in the world. He says, this is the next verse, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see how integrated they're supposed to be to society, Peter is saying? He's saying, you're going to be subject to an emperor that you're saying, you're not even a part of his kingdom ultimately, but while you're here, you're going to be subject. You're going to honor everyone. And this means you're going to work amongst the people of the world. It means you're going to do politics with people of the world. And you know what politics means? It's it's the word polis for city. All it means is how do we live in a city together? How do diverse people live in a city together? That's politics. That's what it's supposed to be. Figuring out how to do life together in a diverse situation. We are called by God to do exactly that. Okay? So Christians are to be absolutely integrated. That's how we can be the salt and light Jesus has called us to be. Salt has to be interacted with to be tasted, right? You can't taste salt from a distance. Um, Light in a house, you have to be in the house to be a light in the room of the house that Jesus is talking about. You can't be off in your own house and and there's another house for all the unbelievers. It doesn't work that way. He's, He's saying, I'm putting you in the midst. I'm putting my kingdom in the midst of the city of man, but we also are to be distinct. Listen again to uh, this portion of our scripture. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. 
Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The mark of being a part of the ultimate kingdom that God is creating and in us, within us, is that Christians should be utterly distinct while being in the middle of their culture. Not dominant, mind you, distinct. And they're waiting. They're waiting for the victorious return of Jesus. They're waiting for an ultimate restoration. They're waiting for the exaltation that comes when the people of God are gathered to the victorious Christ. And what is it that's supposed to make us distinct? I podcasted uh, yesterday. I did our our Faith Over Breakfast uh, podcast I do with my buddy Eric normally, but he's out of town. And so I I brought in two of my friends, uh, Bob and Pike. And uh, and the thing about Bob and Pike that I wanted to, to, to know, I wanted to learn from them, was that they're not, neither one of them goes to church. And so Pike doesn't go to church as a guy who used to. He grew up in youth group, kind of like family was sort of involved. Then he got really into church around like high school and college age, got in that friend group. And then these days he would kind of like say, I, I, may, may I could go, I should go, but I don't. I just doesn't go. And then Bob is in the, the ballpark of like, hey, every once in a while, if it was a holiday, my family would go, but generally we weren't church-going folks and I've never been. And I wanted to hear from them about their view of church as people who weren't steeped in it uh, like me. And a couple of things that, you know, maybe just to debunk uh, some, some things that we might sort of assume came up, especially, especially from Bob. Bob said, um, I said, what, how should the church present itself? And he kind of laughed and he said, well, if you're trying to entertain us, you're not going to compete with the other options. <laughs> okay. And then he also said, and if you think you're going to be like doing good things for the poor, there's tons of nonprofits I can go help out. I don't need your help with that. Oh. So he was like, he was kind of left at like, so I don't know. And I take it to mean those are the two themes he tends to see. Is that there are the churches going like, hey, look, we're doing something really cool in here. Want to come check it out? And he's like, no, I can go to any concert I want. Thank you. And then there are churches that are like, we serve the poor. And he's like, great. I can do that without lying about believing in Jesus anywhere else. No problem. Um, I think those are the two ways of a lot, a lot of us in church try to be distinct and honestly, um, as Bob is saying, it's not working. And I think the Apostle John is saying that's way too superficial because the distinction that John teaches us is far more complex, far more difficult to put your finger on, and it is having a father who we know. That's the distinction. A father who we know. So the Christian's relationship to the world should be in one sense totally integrated, working together for the common good, but in another sense utterly uh, distinct. 
utterly distinct. We should have a father that we know that is feeding our souls in a different way. And I, I really appreciate the way Tim Keller puts that how you should think about living in the world. He says, look, you should be all the things that you are, the, the job that you are, the ethnicity that you, you should be that. You don't have to get rid of that. It's part of who you are, but you, you should always have a dominant feature as a Christian. And that is your faith in Christ. That's your dominant feature. It can critique every other feature of yours, your political party, your ethnicity, your background, your job, your vocation, however you want to put it, it is second. So then it would be, you know, just to get back to Kanye West for a brief second, you, you don't want to be a Christian rapper. You don't need to be a Christian rapper. You can be a rapper, right? That is part of who you are. That's just, it's part of who you are. But your Christianity is going to be more important in your life. It's going to be the dominant feature in your life. It doesn't mean everything you rap about needs to be Jesus. But it's going to be the dominant feature in your life. It should be clear that the Christian source of hope, motivation, meaning, and inner fulfillment is coming from outside of the world, from God, from the gospel of grace given to undeserving people through Jesus Christ. So I think some distinctions that you should be able to see would be these. The Christian can tell the difference, and I would really hope they could articulate it if they've been given the faculties, the difference between grace and every other motivation to live a good life. The Christian should profoundly and deeply know the difference between living because of the grace of God and any other motivation. And John Stott in his commentary on 1 John says that the big overcoming that, that he believes the Apostle John is talking about when he says you've overcome the false teachers is the overcoming of understanding how critical and key the grace of God is in every motivation of the heart. Another distinct characteristic that I think this scripture gives us is that the distinct people of God are submissive to one another and in community. And I think that's really, uh, that's really key. This, all this, the scripture where it says, little children, you, and it's a you all are from God. And he gets into, he says, we and they, and it's all, it's all like language of community. When he, at the end, when he says, we are from God, he's, he's talking about the himself, Christ's apostles, and the church. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to, listens to us. We listen to one another. We are connected. It sounds almost really, really bold for him to say, like, I am from God. It's, it's almost a little crazy. But he is reflecting back on Jesus And his prayer where he knew Jesus had sent him in the world to carry his message. And he's saying, if you link on to what I am saying and to everyone else who is saying this, then you're in the truth. And there's a depth of committed community that this scripture just assumes is true. So the Christian community lives integrated among the other communities of the world, but remains unique 
and distinct. They have a father that they know, and they know who each other are. They know the difference between working and being a good person and relying and trusting on God's, God's grace. So how do we cultivate that kind of relationship with the world? Two things, and then I'll wrap it up. Number one, in this passage, and this is really key, a sense of ultimate safety is how you cultivate this kind of relationship with the world. Listen to this. He says, little children, you are from God and have past tense overcome them. You've overcome the false messages already. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I mean, do you hear that sense of safety and hope that the apostle just exudes? Like, you have already overcome all of your adversaries because of how great Jesus is as compared to how great their their basis for hope is. You are good. You are safe. So this must exclude any fear-based model of engaging with the world. Think about it. If, If what John is saying here is true, we are not protecting anything. We are not saving anything. We are not fixing anything. We are standing firm and trusting in a God who has done a perfect job already. And so if you are afraid, I would would say the issue isn't with the surrounding culture, but you need to look at your relationship with Jesus because you need to know that you're his child and how much greater he is than he who is in the world. If you're afraid that, you know, our culture or any culture of the world is going to come in and mess all this up, you need to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Because when you see the tempter as more powerful than Jesus, you are on the precipice of succumbing to his temptation. That's what happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve heard the tempter's words and they thought, he might be right, actually. Maybe God isn't in control of this. Maybe he doesn't know all things. Maybe he isn't working all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. The minute they doubted that and they thought, maybe this tempter is a little stronger and a little smarter, they were ready to fall into temptation. But when God is exalted in your heart and his power is exalted in your heart, when you say, because of Christ, I have overcome them, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, you can walk confidently through this life. The Christian can be hopefully integrated, but distinct by cultivating the sense of safety and the greatness of God and in the power of the gospel that assures us that we're beloved children of a powerful, wise father who's in control. Number two, a sense of understanding the reason for people's different perspectives. Listen to this again, verses five and six. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God 
doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What this is saying is the people of the world are coming from a place of different presuppositions. They have different foundational principles. And not only that, if you're a Christian, yours are spiritually discerned presuppositions. Paul, I I read to you from 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read you a little earlier in 1 Corinthians 5 where he tells you that you're going to go in among the world, right? Where he said, I'm not taking you away from all these sinful people in the world. I'm telling you not to associate with hypocrites. But before he said that, in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14, he said this. He said, we, as believers, have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things that have been freely given to us by God. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, this should teach us to assume that we're going to differ from the surrounding culture because we're coming from a whole different set of foundational truths. And it should cause us to be very, very humble. Here's why. Because if you happen to believe that there is a God over all creation who created all things and has gifted us with his word to lead us and guide us to be a light into our feet, and you believe that in your failing of that, you needed a savior and that Jesus Christ was God's gift to humanity to save us from our failure, you believe something that can only be given as a gift. The Bible itself says people coming from their own natural background are not going to make up that story. People are not going to bow their knee to a God who says, And say to him, tell me who I am. Tell me what to do. I will worship you with all of my heart and I will sacrifice my life for the sake of my brothers and sisters. It's absolutely unnatural. And it's it's given as a gift by God. So if you've been given it, if you have that, that wasn't you. That was not your great idea. You didn't, you know do a great apologetics course and figure out that all the other philosophers were stupid. You didn't. Your eyes of your heart were open to spiritual truth. And that is a gift from God. And the fact that you have it is all grace. All grace. So then what that means is when people that you engage with don't see it, you're not dealing with stupid people. In fact, the scriptures say that God confounds the wisdom of the wise. You might be dealing with really wise people who are doing everything they can to understand life in this world. They, They might have so many more ducks in a row than you do, actually. And so you need to be very humble. 
But the kingdom of God isn't for the wise. It's a place where the meek are blessed and the poor in spirit are blessed because it's a kingdom where God is praised for his mercy and grace. So to be a distinct community in the world isn't to prove we're the smartest or to have the best arguments. It's to actually have a father that we know and to live for unique reasons empowered by gospel principles. So you'd live out of a gratitude for, to Jesus for what he's done for you as opposed to duty. You'd live empowered by being loved as opposed to trying to earn love. You'd live out of being forgiven as opposed to trying to be a better person. And all of that comes only as a gift of Christ by his spirit. And living like that and telling people why is how we become a light integrated into the midst of our world and how we remain distinct in a world that's going to try to influence us. That's what you hold on to. We started off with Jesus uh, praying at the table and his betrayer had had left the table and he prayed for his people. He told them he was going to leave them. He was going to send them into the world that the world was going to hate them. And they were sitting down for a meal that all sorts of unbelievers would have been sitting down to eat. Bread and wine are pretty normal stuff in the, uh, in the diet of people those days. And he took a piece of ordinary bread. Now, when anybody else saw this bread... They just saw dinner. And Jesus took dinner and he broke it and he said, for you, this is my body broken for you. Every time that you eat this, remember me. And do you know how many times they ate bread? Like every day, every day. And then he takes the cup of wine and they drink a lot more wine, maybe less uh, intense than ours, you could say. They especially drank it when they celebrated. And he said, this is my blood. No longer is this just the, the way that you lift your spirits. But for you, everybody else around you is going to drink wine. But for you, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. I think this kind of illustrates how we're to live. We do the things that other people do. This isn't crazy stuff. It's bread and wine. We do the things that other people are going to do. But we, because of God's grace, see more. We see more happening here. When we see anybody rip a piece of bread, somehow it, it instill, we remember what Christ has done for us. Every time when people are pouring out wine to celebrate their new job or their wedding, we think Christ was poured out for the forgiveness of many. And when we think like that and we're shaped by that, and every time we come to worship and bow down before him, we receive him like that, we cultivate a distinct flavor in our hearts. And we witness to the world that we see more, but it's all because of his mercy.